This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, you say you want to start a revolution? Want to start a revolution? Wait, is that the wrong wrong country? No, you're right. You're right. The, this is the Beatles. <laughs> right. <laughs> and see. I mean, we've talked about revolution already here, Dave. A lot. We talked about that way back in Ducky Sucker. Ducky so Sucker. We're kind of spent as far as rebellions go. Spend is an interesting word. It's kind of gross. Um, mm-hmm. I've got an old trench coat and I used to smoke cigarettes. I think that, uh, I think I can make this You're work. You're not allowed next to any elementary school. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's just what it takes. Actually, now <laughs> I'm thinking about Judd Nelson. We're going to end this podcast in a freeze frame. We're only a month away from Earth by the looks of it. Oh. It's getting so big in our front window. I'm just gonna, I just, we need to maybe slow, we need to slow our, you know, uh, that descent or ascent, I don't really know how space physics works. Scent. So we yeah, need to just slow, slow our sound here. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me our scent. Let me just fill it with some of these knobs and stuff here. Mr. Gorbachev, oh, wow. oh. tear down this wall. <laughs> Mr. Pop. <laughs> on a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I don't have a name. And I'm The Machine. Uh, This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse, and then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space, so now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film... That's uh, quite a mouthful. Throw away your books, rally in the streets. そぼ止め。父正春。母育志望。長女説。そっちと口が違うのは、そっちは情内が嫌いになってるだろう。だけどこっちは柔軟だよな。Of course, we have to give a big thank you to Green Girl YYC and It's a Conspiracy Podcast, our patrons over on Patreon. Dave, you know, sometimes I'm confronted by this simple fact that we are totally unqualified to talk about films. <laughs> Doesn't stop us. And never so much, never so much maybe in this instance, because we are about to talk about a kind of art film, a provocative film from Japan 
and is kind of two things that I don't really have a great language for, like art films and like the history of Japan. Like I don't really know a lot about that, and especially the history of Japanese film. So that's where I want to start. I just want to talk about the history of Japanese film with you. Like, what do your what are your heavy hitters? What do you know? I don't know. They make films. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> who, uh, who are your guys, Dave, <laughs> in Japanese film? I don't know. I uh, my perception of Japanese cinema is nearly 80% anime and 20% Kurosawa right. and then modern sort of uh, modern, you know Takeshi Miike and all the new the new guys they were new like 30 years ago you know historically the only thing that I uh, am interested in especially with this podcast just kind of poking at let's say the first iteration of Gojira or you know yeah. when we haven't watched a Kurosawa film yet because nope. you, like a plebe, won't even watch Seven Samurai. There are uh, there are I'm things. I'm stuck that... on Ikiru. That's a lot. I've literally seen every Kurosawa Kurosawa movie up until Ikiru, and for some reason, I just like I don't want to. I don't have four hours to spend <laughs> on this Saturday to watch Seven Samurai. Um, Anyways, and I don't know if this is indicative of Japanese film. Oh, I'm putting my hand in front of my mouth. I don't know if this is indicative of Japanese film itself, but. You know, for example, looking at Kurosawa's work, there's so many things that he was able to do that other directors who we uh, applaud sort of borrow from. So there's a mm -hmm. great deal of creativity. Uh, I think the culture itself, having lightly studied it back in university, has such a fascinating connection with the mystical and the uh, abstract. Their Shinto religion and the way that they conceptualize gods is so fundamentally different than a North American perspective. And I think it reflects a lot in their writing and in you know, like in anime and in the way they tell stories. If you watch Kurosawa's interpretations, of, let's say of Shakespeare, there's great visual and interpretive yeah. beauty to it. It's kind of like the best example of adapting a work but bringing your own thing into it, right? It's like, I'm not just doing a Shakespeare play. It's like, no, I'm taking those themes, but infusing it into my own culture, which is kind of a fascinating way to adapt something. And yeah, I mean, even just moving away from Kurosawa fandom, whoever directed uh, Godzilla, I forgot. You know, the Honda. idea of writing a story that uses a giant radioactive monster as a metaphor for, you know, uh, let's say nuclear war and po politics and pollution. Yeah. Um, in 1950, was it three, 56? Uh, no, 1950, it's nine years after the atomic, 1954 so, was when the first Godzilla movie came out. It's like fascinating to think about that that's, that's already uh, so quickly and, and so uh, well executed. And I think that just points a picture that way. I think bringing up Godzilla specifically is like a really interesting touch point here. I, just as a quick little backstory, I think I'm the, I'm the inverse of you, where you say like 80% is anime and 20% is Kurosawa. I'm probably like 80% Kurosawa, 20% anime. So you I'm don't watch anime, anime, anime guy. Right, right. I've, I've watched, literally, I've watched Death Note, some of Death Attack on Titan. Yeah. I'm watching Cowboy Bebop currently, that and the Miyazaki films. Like, that's as much anime as I have consumed. I have not done much more than that. But I do think, again, this is a North American white point of view of Japan. But what I find so fascinating about them is, of course, how could it not? When those atomic bombs are dropped on your nation, it kind of fundamentally changes you and the way that you perceive yourself. And you see that much devastation, people that you love are dead, et cetera, et cetera. What's also been interesting this year is, again, on the other podcast I do about uh, my favorite Broadway composer, Stephen Sondheim, he did this really interesting musical that came out in 1976 called Pacific Overtures, which is all about 
America and Japan kind of meeting up and the fallout from from those meetings. So we we go we, from this nation. So this is like all the stuff that I only know the surface level of. We have this island nation who chooses to be like, we want to separate ourselves from the world. We're our own little thing out here in the middle of the ocean. And we're totally fine just being our own little thing. When America kind of forces themselves into that, unlike what I think so many nations do, like, oh, we have to copy the U.S. in pop culture, technology, etc. They're like, wait a second, we're seeing how their imperialism works. So let's do something super similar. We want to do this the Japanese way of like accelerating it. And in the 70s, we're seeing that kind of pay off. Like America is super scared of Japan at this point. It's like, oh, they're, this is before the boogeyman was China. Oh, Japan is going to like rise up and overtake us economically. And that's a bad thing because, you know, Asians are scary. We are. So there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff, I think, going on here in the 70s. That I could see where a Kurosawa born pre 19 whatever you've been born in the 1920s or 30s as being like this formalist classical style cinema versus the people who are born after those atomic bombs get dropped or near that time being like kind of fuck you to this idea of like trying to take over the world and that's what the youth movement is kind of looking at so i think there's interesting stuff there i just wish i knew more about it because apparently i went down this huge rabbit hole of the punk scene in japan which only lasted like eight years in the late 70s and that's a whole fascinating story, I thought. Anyways, there's this there's some interesting things that are going up against like tradition, religion, elders, and the young, and, and technology, and like how that all kind of hits together at the same time. Again, uh, you know, I'm not a Asian scholar, but I think it's important. But you do speak for all Asians. So I think it's good. important for uh, North American perspectives to understand the impact of Taoist, particularly Confucius all these sort of like classical societal structures that are so fundamentally different than Western civilization. There's not a lot of individualism. It's very Mm. society and familial focused. So by the time we're in the 19th century, most Asian countries are isolationist. There's already preset borders. Japan in particular has been uh, squirreled away. But what sets Japan apart is that when Europe comes to colonize Asia, uh, Japan decides that they have to embrace the industrial age, whereas all the other Asian right. countries are like, no, you know, we're good. We're still wearing silk robes. And um, that's how Japan becomes a colonist and they're reviled right. for it. Yeah, I, I don't think we should over, we should just brush past the fact of like them going after China, Korea, like they were, they were brutal imperialists themselves. Oh, they subjugated all of Southeast Asia. Just a quick little thing. You know, when the Meiji era started, they actually didn't start off by trying to uh, break other Asian countries. They sent emissaries because the initial policy was to see if anyone would join them. But when the other Asian mm. countries were like, no, you know, we're fine. We don't really trust you. We're good. That's when um, they took their industrial ad- uh, advancements, their boats and their tanks. and Well, uh, maybe not tanks, the, their weapons. And uh, they decided like a true true fascist that they knew what was better. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of broken pieces that fell out of that. Uh, but sure. uh, it is interesting to see how Japan evolved, how Korea evolved, China too. We're, we're looking at China today and that communist monolith as uh, as it was, let's say, in the 70s and 80s. We're starting to peek behind the curtain and that's a really fucking weird country. <laughs> they have one right, time right, zone right. for the entire uh, swath of Asia to centralize their administration. That is insane. I was reading this article that... 
what is it? The western part of China doesn't get their sunrise till like 12 p.m. I, I, there's some weird stuff going on there because uh, they're trying yeah, yeah. to hold together. Uh, all of this to say that uh, it is hard for people who are growing up in North American culture and ideologies to even understand how Japanese people think. So I find that when I meet Korean people from Korea, uh, we do not engage in the world the same way. And it's not just a matter of defined values. There's literally a different lens. And so we see that in art and we see sure. that reflected in all that. I know you both think you're smart, even though you've proven time and again that you're not. I think you're right, though. I think that that different outlook is why sometimes when we do watch this is a, like a recent example, watch Parasite, or if we do watch a Kurosawa film from from Japan, the critical response sometimes is really interesting to me, especially for the Parasite example, because there was a lot of people I remember reading, this is such like a wacky movie. I can't but like, what is this is so bizarre. I'm like, honestly, if you've watched all of other Bong Joon-ho films, it's like it's one of the least wacky films yeah. that he's actually made. So it's just this different perception of like what wacky is and what they're what they want to focus in on and the way that they even frame things sometimes is different. It's also the difference between like, I mean, not to get super political, although we're going to be talking about politics probably this episode, but socialism and, and, and capitalism. Like you watch some of like the great Russian films. This film is really heavy, heavy hitting into like, wouldn't it be great if we just did things for other people? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's very much on like that communist socialist idea. Whereas so many American films from Hollywood is like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're going to do it for yourself. And you yourself are going to become a millionaire. You, the individual, right? It's just a completely different concept of like what is a entertaining and what people are thinking about. And I'm not even saying that there's right or wrong in, in those two approaches. It's just, it's a different worldview. It is also fascinating looking at Western philosophy as well. You know, coming into this era, there are a, a lot of, I mean, we talk about socialism. There are also some new, more uh, empathetic ways that, uh, th you know, philosophers are trying to engage with that this utilitarian and rationalist ideas aren't really working because people are turning cruel. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're talking about an era in the 60s or uh, tailing off in the 60s and entering 1971 where we've presumably experienced hippies and this push from what you're talking about, the post-war generation to push back against old ideas. Um, and that's happening all around the world. I was thinking about it, not that we've watched this movie yet uh, in this deep and rich fiction, but uh, right. what a weird year 1971 is. Imagine making films for the sake of having philosophical discussions and not for right. making money. <laughs> well, I, I think that is the biggest thing. And I, I don't think that's just a 1971 thing. It's an, it's an early 70s thing that does tail away by the end of the 70s it really is this very small period of time where a yes films were being made to yes push buttons and be provocative but also it's like there's this thing i'm wrestling with and i want to make something out of this thing that i'm wrestling with and if i make money great but that's really not my driving force necessarily either versus now when that just is kind of completely anti-ethical not anti-ethical but like completely different from what what we're uh, looking at today you can see that breaking down by the end of the 70s with star wars and like the big blockbusters that start to get released and the studios then enacting a little bit more control because you have to remember too like all the studios were failing and getting busted up and like losing their minds same thing was actually i found out happening in japan uh in the in the early 70s so like toho was not in in a good situation at this point and the other big one which i've forgotten what the name is but so like all over the world i think it's like the french new wave and uh, the, this thing called the Japanese new wave is coming out and really pushing things forward. And then 
it kind of recedes back in time. But you're right. I think it's just so so much political upheaval, societal upheaval, artistic expression. Everyone's high on lead fumes. Like everything is just like at this boiling point of like, bruh. We're just going to like experience this. So now when we look back and it's like, whoa, a movie that's like forcing me to think about something. I don't know about this. Yeah. One of the things that's occurring to me right now is like, I'm just trying to think why this is not taking hold right now. And my first thought is this capitalist problem that we won't fight with our money. Like we'll still give Marvel, for example, right. Disney Marvel, you know, we'll have a billion dollars to go watch an Avengers film. And then in well, one last in Nomadland, nobody will watch that right? Except right. nerds. But I think beneath that is this sense that we are complacent and apathetic now. You know, I think the post-war generation is interesting because people were so upset, not just of the injustice and pain that they suffered at the hands of war, but how their previous generation handled the fallout of it. They mm -hmm. couldn't understand how people could make the decision to kill so many people and then how they tried to make broker peace using politics as opposed to, let's say, you know, holding people accountable through justice. Korea, for example, has decades. I mean, my dad fucking talks about this ad nauseum about the demonstrations. I mean, this is an Asian thing, but Korea in particular loves fucking going out, breaking windows, having riots, students going out. And they did that. I mean- they, You might say that they rally in the streets. Well, that's the thing. Even into the 80s and 90s. And, but I mean, Korea is younger in the sense that it took them much longer to come out of the war period. I think they don't get their economic blossoming until the 80s. So, uh, mm -hmm. so my dad, for example, grew up at the beginning of that fervor, whereas Japan kind of caught up, probably because they were already established as an, they had the industrial skeleton, even though they had lost the war. So they burst up a little bit earlier. And you see this in Germany, you see this in France and England and it's sort of in America. Yeah, people were upset enough to do something about it and to make the choice that I don't want to pay money for the next musical starring like a 60-year-old Gene Kelly, I want to watch I want to watch a bunch of people kicking somebody else barefoot and holding up their fist because yeah. I want to see someone trying to make change, whether it's a good movie or not. And we don't care. Like, look at voting. Nobody votes. Nobody gives a shit anymore, Kyle, right? It's, it's sure. kind of weird. I mean, yeah, it, it, I, yeah. Oh, not to go down that rabbit hole. I just want to go back to what you were saying about are we ever going to see something like this happen again? Like even in, in a short, like four or five year period of a bunch of films coming out. And again, it has to be reiterated consistently throughout this season. These were not just like filmmakers making this and only filmmakers want to watch it. These are movies that are also being watched mm -hmm. by the general population. They're hitting the top 10 highest grossing films in North America and stuff. Not this film. This one was, like, uh, <laughs> is it ninth in Japan that year? I think I, I read did that. well in Japan. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but still, that's... Pretty amazing because, uh, spoiler alert, this movie fucking sucks, but uh, let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But I was really, I wish I could remember who wrote this so I could credit them. I was actually just reading an article about this. Like people look fondly back, a lot of critics and historians look fondly back at the seventies specifically in film. And it's like, these were challenging works that people were going to see that were sparking conversations. Are we ever going to see that actually happen again? This is also where I always put my little... Like asterisk next to this, it's, I'm not ever saying that there aren't challenging films made today, but they're also not the top 10 grossing movies of the year. Like they're, they're a subset of what the larger Hollywood picture is. They had this theory, which I don't know if I really agree with, to be honest with you, but their theory is that is like because Hollywood always trails a little bit to where the people are feeling right now is that with the whole Donald Trump presidency uh, economic instability kind of crashing in, the opioid crisis still raging on, 
that in about five years, like in the mid twenties, 2020s, I'm talking about is when we might see this like breakthrough of like people just being fed up. Like, I don't want to just sit here oddly by and watch the next big superhero film you're force feeding me. We're done. I want something that's going to be more auteur driven. That's going to like force me to think about things that, that makes me want to uh, not just like placidly sit by, but engage with and feel better with. And I'm like, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just so Maybe you've rubbed off on me too much here, Dave. And I'm so like pessimistic about that, uh, that worldview. I think that there is always going to be a subset and maybe you'll get like one or two movies. that will yes, be the most watched on Netflix or like in the top 10 somehow. I just don't see it being a big trend in the same way, but I don't know. Maybe prove me wrong, I guess. <laughs> so well, maybe, maybe I agree with you. I think uh, I'm just trying to remember how Mark said, like, is it religion is the opiate for the masses or something like that? Uh, something like that right yeah. now uh entertainment is content is yeah for me opium is the opiate of the masses it will happen eventually i mean the idea that you could suggest some intellectual could suggest it'll happen within a certain time frame is so arrogant yeah yeah Th- that's where i came from like yeah. like yeah Five it's saying, years, like, I mean, it's <laughs> january 15th yeah. of 2024 yeah. <laughs> that's the moment if the not the mayans but if that uh, culture yeah. got it wrong in 2012 you know what it will take if history tells us anything is unfortunately uh widespread war, famine, and fucking suffering, boredom. And we need, unfortunately, for something to hit hard enough that the critical mass will change. And right now, the way that, at least from the inside, we see how, I'm going to air quote culture because I fucking hate how the general populace consumes all this shit. But for us to change the average person to turn away from Instagram and read a fucking difficult you know, in this case, like so many movies in this fucking year, rape and violence right. and, you know, uh, the cruelty of human nature. Are we really going to expect uh, the average American to turn their gaze that way? No, it's just, it would need something really, really big. Uh, whether that's actually happening or not, we're definitely not uh, smart enough to say. If Mark Zuckerberg, that robot, Gross. can simply switch the name of his company and walk away from all the controversy that Facebook caused, uh, we haven't hit that critical mass thing yet because nobody gives a shit. Uh, It is frightening a little bit. Yeah, we'll need a war. Yeah. By the way, please do go and watch our videos on Instagram presented to you by the metaverse. (laughs) Meta, baby. It's meta. Um, I, I think that's also, this gets again into such a big gatekeeping, like pretentious art person. I try so hard not to be, but always end up being. Just embrace it. I am always so shocked at what I feel are like complete misreadings of like very obvious things that I see consistently and all the time. Like there is, have you ever watched the movie They Live by any chance with a rowdy, rowdy piper? No, definitely not. No. (laughs) Directed by John Carpenter. Um, considered one of his like minor classics, which I agree. I love that movie. It's dopey and dumb, but I still love that movie. But the whole the the, the setup of that movie, science fiction, you put on this pair of glasses and you actually see like, oh, there's like this alien race and robots that are actually controlling the message and advertising, what you're seeing on TV, et cetera, et cetera. There's this like very obvious social commentary that's happening in that movie. Anyways, like it's so obvious to me <laughs> that that movie is like coming down on like the institutions of power, like the people uh, running the magazines and the TV stations who are force feeding people shit. However, uh, listening to and reading in the backstory of that movie, it 
that movie got co-opted by white supremacists because like, well, obviously this movie is showing you that the Jews are the reason why everything is bad in America to the point where John Carmen had to come out and be like, uh, no, absolutely a thousands of percent. That is not what this movie is about. And stop watching my movie if you're a white supremacist. So it's like that sort of thing. Or the people who look at the graduate, like what a happy ending the graduate is. <laughs> they go off and they get married. And I'm like, no, I don't understand how you're watching this and coming away with that interpretation. So that's why I always come back. It's like, even if there was this influx of like, quote unquote, like high minded stuff, I'm not even <laughs> certain people will pick up on like the very obvious thing that people are trying to present to them. I don't know if we've talked about in this podcast, but there's this idea of, I mean, I think I read about photography, but let's, let's call it art. So there is a, a metaphys metaphysical existence of a piece of art as a conception in artist's mind. There's the art as it's produced by the artist, you know, whatever form it mm -hmm. takes. And then there's art as it's interpreted by a viewing public. Correct. And yeah, the yeah. three of them are not the same ever. It's a great insight. Like, uh, just to turn back to this film, I watched something like this or Sweet Sweet Back. I wanted to compare that or Godzilla versus Hedera uh, or yep. Ducky. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I want to bring that yeah, up too. There's so, <laughs> many, there's so many layers of all the movies now that we're so close to the end of this romp, this riot in 1971. <laughs> Uh, that you know that's uh, how we should advertise this podcast come and join the romp <laughs> but there's uh there's uh, so many fascinating parallels to talk about but it doesn't mean that i enjoyed watching this movie which i didn't and maybe that's the point right. maybe you're but, supposed to hate yeah. it i have absolutely no idea and we'll talk about that too i hope well let's do that let's let's actually go and talk about this movie because again i think there is a lot of stuff that we're going to be able to jump into and, and discuss uh, part of that being my theory that I think it's okay to come away not liking a movie, but still value your time of having watched that movie, <laughs> even if you don't like it. Um, if we didn't believe that, we would have quit this podcast uh, a lot yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's do that. We're going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about throw away your books, rally in the streets. Have you ever burnt a book before, Dave? Um, huh. I don't know. Maybe. In your wild youth. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Going back to the devils. No, you <laughs> your know time what? At the I, don't, convent. I don't think I've ever burned a book. I like books. I burned some stuff, though. I lit my desk on fire at home once. Did, did you... I want to hear more about that, but did you hear... I can't remember what southern U.S. state it is, but of course they want to ban some books from certain schools and uh, the governor was like we should actually burn those books so that the kids can't get access to them but one of them was Fahrenheit 451 I'm wow. like wow I can't even write satire about this stuff anymore <laughs> because it's so stupid <laughs> this is the problem with human beings we are fundamentally yeah. dumb a lot of us yeah yeah Let's talk about some sponsors here then, right, Dave? <laughs> lead in. Why, why, why would we talk about that when we need to talk about all the people who are helping us out, Kyle? Holy shit. Of course. I mean, obviously, we have to start off by saying that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Uh, it is my duty here to inform you about ATB, the bank. And apparently they have a podcast called The Feature of Podcast. Mm. Uh, it's hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financials Vice President and Chief Economist. Ooh. The Feature of Podcast has launched its third season, you know, roughly a year ago. But by, con by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you, The Feature of Podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain 
future. Very much like the movie we're going to watch here today, Dave, an uncertain future is in front of you. What do you do? Buy a trench coat. One thing you can do. You can wear a trench coat and you can also explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. You can subscribe to the future of in the Apple store, Google play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found and connect with us at atb.com slash the future of. All right. Good job, Kyle. Well read. Thank you. Yeah. Let's talk about energy. Energy. I love it. Uh, This episode is also brought to you by Park Power. They're friendly, they're local, and they provide utility services here in Alberta. Services like the internet. I didn't know that. You know, I just pay Shaw. (laughs) Whoa, the entire internet? Electricity and natural gas. They got low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Now, it's unusual for us to talk about this in Calgary, but winter is still coming. It's been pretty warm. But uh, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And energy usage. Like I'm naturally warm for November. It was like plus 13 degrees Celsius. Super strange. In mid-November. Climate change. If you believe in that sort of thing. Wah, yeah. wah. Winter's coming. Energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for our listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they are on their best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligation comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy, Kyle. It's easy. And Very easy. You can feel good knowing you are supporting a local business and helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. That's how you know they're local. They've got a .ca at the That's end. That's right. It's uh you know, shop local and think global. I thought about right? that for my website, and then I decided not to do that. All right, Dave. Well, we uh, we're here. We're at the edge of a revolution, watching people uh, push back against the That's rigid one system way to put that they it. find themselves yeah, in. We've watched some people do a lot of stuff in this movie. Yeah. With yeah, with with your furrowed brow and clenched jaw that I noticed you watching this film with. What did you think? <laughs> Oh, we're going to get so many letters. What do you think about throw away your books rally in the streets? Yeah, I hate it. I, um, <laughs> no, it's a flat hate it. I, well, not to mince words. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Uh, uh, as we talked about in our exceptionally long intro, although it's becoming part for the course, spent at least half an hour uh, before we actually talked about a movie. We do it a lot with movies we're scared to really delve in and talk about. <laughs> uh, this is, you know, this is like Japanese sweet bag. This is kind of sure. like, um, I don't know. This is a fascinating... I, I didn't even... I think half... Okay, half the problem is I didn't know this was going to be an avant-garde uh, art film. Uh, so, th- I was not in the right... So, to, to be fair with you, Dave, I did not know that either. <laughs> I thought this was actually a very like straightforward narrative that we're getting it into and th- that's not what this movie is. Yeah. So, it's like you go in for ice cream and someone shoves a pickle in your mouth. So, it was kind right. of a weird... It took a long time for me to gauge well not long i mean just from the intro you're like this is wrong and then i tried to sit through it i think the other thing is because we're not japanese and we're not old it is hard to understand actually even with 1971 in america what people are actually angry about and we have you know this general idea like we talked about this post-war thing baby boomers gen x trying to get against the establishment but the reality is i can't even after having watched this movie connect with any of the cultural nuances, the references, the satire, anything. Mm -hmm. Um, It is kind of like this 
it's like walking to a gallery, literally, and, and just seeing a piece of art and trying to understand why they fucking did it. And I didn't get I it. think this movie probably would benefit a lot if there was a bunch of contacts. Like if I watched a 30-minute documentary beforehand just to get me up to speed with what is happening in Japan at the time. There's actually a, a scene where they're wearing... The masks? I'm pretty sure... Uh, a North, like someone from America's face, like as a mask. I thought it was a Japanese. I sure don't know yeah. who it is. Yeah, or no, maybe I, it was. I, whoever, whoever that person is that they're wearing the mask of, I have no idea who that is or what they're. I was commenting on presuming, which I didn't even fact check because I, I didn't want to. Um, that was probably the prime minister of Japan at the time, but it's hard to tell. I mean, who cares? Just to uh, put this out there in the back because there's not a lot of background research because this is again from a different no. culture. There's a museum dedicated to this director. Uh, because he is, Correct. you know, uh, a very renowned counterculture avant-garde art, like artist, not a filmmaker. Yeah, not just filmmaker, but photographer, Poet, writer, did the whole yeah. thing. Uh, and so the cultural impact of this film is lost on me, but it doesn't mean that it didn't have one. But since we're likely speaking to North American or Eastern European or some kind of non-Japanese audience, this movie is almost unpalatable. And I want to talk about Sweetback because... Why is this considered a top 250 movie and Sweetback is reviled? It tells you a lot, I think, about uh, American yeah. racism because they're very, very similar. They're very similar. They are very similar. I, I, I also want to bring up Sweetback in the discussion of this movie. So we might as well do that now. I agree with you. I want to start off what I'm about to say, with, which is I, I agree with you a lot. I think that because I am just separated by a culture and then separated by 50 years, mm -hmm that it, it was very hard for me to engage with this movie on any type of emotional level. I did end up liking some isolated moments from this movie, which we'll get to. Overall, I did not enjoy my time watching this movie. It got into that, what I find overbearing from a lot of art films that I've watched, which is like, ooh, we're going to like shake the camera yeah. and do different colors and blah, blah, blah. We're going to do all this stuff. And like, yeah, but I don't, this isn't fun for me to watch. And not in like every moment of a film has to be fun for me, but at least I can take something that's, unpleasant and like okay well it fits into the narrative here for me this was just like we're gonna do random stuff or we're gonna be like provocative i'm like ah, i don't care i don't really care about any of this stuff however as far as like just a, a, a aesthetic as well as like technical comparison to sweetback all i can say is while like fundamentally i find them very similar in subject matter and what they're trying to go for i find this film like so vastly better just to watch aesthetically at least things are in focus certain scenes at least lead into each other where i could actually tell what was happening whereas in sweetback i remember having to go to the wikipedia page afterwards and be like i need you to fundamentally tell me what happened in this movie because i do not understand what this person who this person was how they led to here and then you'll find that they couldn't shoot like 10 percent of their movie and it feels like it because they just had to make it up so that's where I'm at. I, like, I didn't really enjoy the movie, <laughs> but there's like, yeah, some of those isolated moments where I was like, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. It's like, oh, I haven't seen this in a Japanese movie before. Specifically, I will say their focus on like uh, queerness, people in drag, kind of like that under well, quote unquote underbelly of Japanese society. That was like super like, oh, I've never really seen a lot of this. A, I've not seen a lot of Japanese film either, so that's not probably super profound to say. But uh, and then overall, this the rest of it was like, man, this is a long two hours and twenty minutes. Oh this God. could have easily have been ninety minutes long for me. Ninety been could way have been better. sixty minutes. I mean, it's a it's like a THX eleven thirty eight as well. This is a student film that got 
stretched out into something. In this case, uh, very intentionally and, and almost childishly, there's sort of like this uh, presumption and this immaturity about it, uh, not in its intention, uh, but just in its form. It's a mess. I, just to speak about that sort of underbelly thing, I, I think, I can't remember if it was somebody I know who said this or if I read this somewhere, but how America tries to appear very wild, but is so conservative inside. Whereas England mm. and Japan try to look very conservative outside, but they've always been sort of have like a wild private area. So if you watch, for right. example, a lot of anime, a lot of, I mean, we see this now in modern um, Asian cinema, they are not as um, worried about offending a public as North Americans sure. are. Um, but North Americans always put on this uh, pomp and circumstance uh, about being punk and about being a libertarian, about being a fucking freedom fighter. Look at the size of these nuts in my truck. It means I, I fight for freedom. But they're, they're all yeah. you know, they're Puritans, right? And they hate. They hate full of hate. I wear truck nuts as earrings. I agree with you. I mean, we saw this in Sweet, Sweet Back too. There is, um, when you're suffering or when you have a counterculture upbringing, you don't discriminate the same way that the establishment will because mm -hmm. you don't have anything to fear. You're already losing everything. From a talking point perspective, you know, any of these films we're watching this year has a great grounding in this. They are all not just trying to take risks because the, you know, HUAC and not the MPA, but whatever, you know, film board has dissolved. But also, you know, that's the zeitgeist. That's the culture of the time is that people want to have conversations of why they're so unhappy because they're supposed to be happy. You have a lot of money in America. Japan's in the middle of a restoration, uh, but the kids fucking hate it. It doesn't mean this movie's good. It's almost unwatchable. To, I didn't turn it off like I did the uh, some other films. So there's something to it. I almost threw up a couple times because they did not just shaky cam, but like 10 minutes of fucking running well, on a yeah. train track. I was going to say, oh my God. I know we were watching this together within our fiction here, <laughs> but there were some moments like, ooh, there's a lot of strobing happening yeah. in this film right now. Dave probably is not having a great time with I, these scenes. I was reading uh, sort of like a review after and I fucking hate I, the letterbox reviews for this are so obnoxious, so pretentious. But some of them are talking about how, oh, the masterful use of these colors. And like, that's not a masterful use of color. That's a kid putting like a fucking filter or changing the way they've exposed it because they think it's cool. It has, has nothing to do with intentionality. Like there's scenes shot in this brutal green and then it turns green blue. and then magenta. Magenta. Yeah. Like who cares? Right? It's awful. I know. Like, that wasn't the make or break it parts for me because by a certain point, it, the only intentionality Ignore. behind it was what it felt like to me is that the magenta was him fantasizing about something that hadn't happened and the green was stuff that was actually in his memory. That seemed to be what he was playing with. Whether that is what you had to do to make that clear, I'm not 100% convinced with that, but at least there'd be, there seemed to be something behind that. I got the most frustrated by your shaky cam the one that you always get mad at there's a moment where he's running down train tracks Ugh. it goes a full two minutes it's crazy i'm just waving the camera around yeah. like i get it yes it's frantic you can need like three seconds of this to communicate what what is happening we don't need to sit here for two minutes or they're playing the the soccer game and like for five minutes like i have really no idea what's happening no. in this soccer game because we're just in the middle of the scrum wildly waving a camera around the fact that there's even a scrum tells you that they don't yeah. play soccer. So it's it's just a weird 
Like the, all of the, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm misremembering this, but maybe the change room, was it getting dirtier and grosser through the movie? Or was it, I, I didn't understand how, why they spent so much time in there other than to set up a, a gang rape scene. Which goes on for yeah. a long time. I mean, there's, it's just like Sweep Back. There's a, there's a scene with the pedophilia, except it's very short, which is different than- That's what I was about to right? say. It doesn't linger on those things quite as long as what Sweep Back did. His yeah. sister's having sex with a rabbit. I mean, it's fucking weird stuff, man. This is a this is a strange. Because it has movie. big feet. You know, you know what they say about big feet. So, um, yes, no, I I agree. They're they're being just as provocative. One, of course, is focusing on the race relations in in America specifically. This one is, of course, looking at I think the youth movement inside Class of Japanese society. Yep. So somewhat different, but I think still trying to be as like. We want to push as many buttons here as possible. I will say the other moments that I kind of liked are the the breaking of the fourth wall. And I always say that because it starts off that way. So it's not one of those like Sunday bloody Sunday moments where at the very end, we're going to like now talk right. to the camera. The, the fancy term I'll use from theater is Brechtian. Brechtian was all about like, we want to show you. We never want to make it feel like this is an actual thing that's happening on stage we want to consistently remind you this is fake that what you're seeing here on stage is fake and the trick with great brechtian theaters that even though they keep reminding you of that you still feel and empathize mm. with what's happening on stage even though you're constantly being reminded that it's not actually real in this one i did actually like those moments of him addressing the camera at the beginning and the end it's like you're gonna forget about me after this like my plight and my struggle you're just gonna forget about it because this is a movie and no one cares and it's like okay well, at least there's a some sort of philosophical point that i kind of like about that there's the moment where like the cameraman wipes the steam off of the the, the camera so these constant reminders that like as much as we're provoking you this is not real we are making this up this is a fiction that you're seeing i don't know whether you think that's them having their cake and eating it too or a very specific point that the filmmaker is trying to make i ended up liking those elements of it i liked the main person the character who was actually called me in in the story most of his scenes worked for me and I would have cut literally everything else out of this movie. Every time it would like go again on these flights of fancy or go to his like his dad or, or focus on his grandmother. It's like, I don't really care about any of these people. <laughs> this isn't what is interesting me. And it's actually kind of straying away from that youth movement point anyways. So it's the same thing with the sweet pick. I had a very visceral reaction when you watch child abuse on screen in Sweet Sweetback. Something similar happens here where like a woman grabs a small boy and like puts it to her breast. And then there's the gang rape scene, which of which thankfully enough is not like we're just going to focus on like a naked woman. It kind of cuts back or just looks at the backs of the men and stuff like that. But it still is a scene that goes on for a long time of this gang rape scene. And it's just at the end of the day, whenever I see movies like this, it's kind of the Sweet Sweetback thing again. It's like, Okay, like I kind of understand and I almost respect how this fits into the culture and what it inspired, but I just don't like it. Like, there's nothing about this that would ever make me want to watch this movie ever again. Luckily, you won't be alive much longer. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. I, I don't even want to give it too much credit for that. So, for example, opening the film with him monologuing directly at the camera, I thought that was great. Honestly, I, I, when that started happening, I didn't like the first two minutes of nothing which is really weird yeah it's, it's really awkward um but when he comes out i thought my copy of the film was actually broken right for a bit. I'm like, oh, oh no and then he starts talking to you and you're like okay 
like this is not going to be like a straightforward. It could be still, but there's something different. And then as it's kind of grinding through the movie, I'm, I was just like, this is this is awful. It's an awful experience. I found the last part where the stage where they're all in the stage. I thought it was so fucking pretentious, Kyle. I hated it. I, yeah. Right. I, I didn't like the last five minutes. I'm just going by every single person who was ever in the film. I turned like, it off. Yeah, I don't I, care. Yeah. I was like, they started doing that. And then when, as soon as it you dawned. You through that. Yeah. As soon as it dawned on me that this is their end credits, that they didn't want to put names yeah. to these people. I was like, all right, I'm good. And I turned it off. I, I know mm-hmm. that's maybe disrespectful because there are apparently a lot of nerd fans of this film. Uh, but you, you missed the Godzilla attack that happens actually <laughs> at the very end. It's a really uh, cool after credit sequence. So I, I don't know. I, I just got reminded when I originally tried to study art once, uh, 20 something years ago, I was in a night school prep class and they start talking about these performance artists in the States, which is actually very similar to this type of film. And at the time there was a guy who was famous for like, I think he was impaling himself and hanging like his body with hooks or some fucking weird shit. Oh yeah, yeah. That's hot. If you're into that stuff, you will love this movie. Uh, I'm not, so I hated it. But if that's the kind of thing you're looking for is something performative that's going to offend people so that we start action, then this movie is for you and everybody else, you will uh, turn this off almost immediately. Yeah. Kind of the same thing. Like when I was in university, there was this professor in the new media department. I don't think they call it new media anymore. His name actually from at birth was Will Smith. Awesome. Big, tall, lanky white guy. However, he legally changed his name to Anonymous Smith. Awesome. So we, you kind of know what how <laughs> this guy is going to go. He would put on these demonstrations. Uh, what he would do is he would get into this like very tight fitting bodysuit and cover his head and body. Perfect. And then dance around <laughs> while literally like beep, 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 beep. Blip, 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 like little chiptune things played behind him. And then like really bad 3D renderings of architecture would flash behind him. <laughs> and I remember coming back, it's like, if this is what art is, I don't, I don't think I like art. <laughs> like, right. I hated it. I hated all of that stuff as, as, a, as a university student. And everyone would get up and be like, not everyone, but they would be like, oh, I loved how this was like a takedown of like authority. And like, I'm like, no, it's stupid. Like, it's so dumb. How is that guy getting paid and we're not, Kyle? You can make it up if you want to. And I was an English major. I can make things out of nothing <laughs> if you want me to. But <laughs> it was just so frustrating to be like, no, this is this is what the people in like rural Counties like this is what the elite think good Big art is like. It's such a parody of what it of what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I, I was sort of railing about this recently. I started following someone on Twitter who is a provocateur, and I've had to unfollow them because even though maybe in the long run, in hindsight, people of that nature will and potentially could affect change, I don't want to be a part of it. Not at the level where I've got to see like a person with tenure, presumably putting on a green man suit and dancing in front of their kids yeah. to uh, provoke thought. I, I think that stuff is so weird. At the same time, for I'm reading uh, Kafka on the Shore. That book's fucking incredible. But this guy's also from the same generation as this director. And we see a lot of the same themes, questioning uh, familial piety, questioning establishment, uh, social order, existential questions, this thing's abstract. But it's done in such a beautiful narrative way that even though it's just completely wild and there are some very pornographic sex scenes and they're very questioning things about gender and about murder and about insanity, uh, I can't stop reading this goddamn book, Kyle. 
And I watch a movie like this and I have to fight through it just because we have a podcast. I would never have watched this thing if it wasn't for you. No. And I blame you, Kyle, personally. <laughs> the machine. Yeah. It's the machine. Uh, it's always the machine. I, I, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to make sure I talked about this and I probably would have forgotten if you didn't just bring this up. My question to you, because I've been struggling with this, is like, where's your line? Wait, like, where is too far abstract for you? Because just to use a, a, a weird example, if you watch the film Fantasia, which I love, I love Fantasia. I, there's this, the very first one is just like a bunch of lines that mm -hmm. move and it's never done it for me. But the other abstract <laughs> stuff where it's like off. <laughs> water falling on flowers and like, and that sort of stuff is like, I love the rest of that movie. It's like, you just have to get past the first 15 minutes because the first 15 minutes is like the worst <laughs> part of the movie because it's just a bunch of lines like being animated. But the rest of it is fine. Like, I, I really love it. And then I watch something like David Lynch, which often is like, oh, this is so beautiful. I have no idea what's happening mm -hmm. in this movie. But the, with this, it's beautiful what I'm actually seeing here. And occasionally I can be swept up in his narratives. So I don't know. what is How far abstract can you get <laughs> before it's like, no. This is, this is too abstract for me. I, I don't know. Maybe the most mature way or uh, the most open-minded way to answer that question in an idealist sense would be on a case-by-case -case scenario. And yeah. maybe one of the problems that we face is that we, like not just you and I, but any uh, commentator on culture is that we expect someone to, you know, uh, what's the metaphor? Uh, draw a line in the sand and never move. So as soon as I've identified myself yeah. as a person who appreciates avant-garde filmmaking, then I necessarily now have to appreciate every avant-garde film ever made. And that's fucking nonsense, right? Just to be trite, someone told me that I should watch The Expanse on Amazon, but I had to get through the first right. season because it start gets good. And so I'm like, I'm not going to start. I, I don't have the energy to get to something that you're going to convince me is good because if it's shit at the beginning, why would I, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. That's like, a, d but right. I mean, just to kind of, the, our, our previous guest we've had on here, Matthew K. Begbie, he, he made this tweet the other day, which I fucking loved oh the show is the best except skip the first season and don't watch four and five of episode two and then like the last episode you can probably skip two but it's the best show that you'll right? ever watch I'm like so true right it's weird and and that's the thing it's it's not that they're wrong i mean just to bring it back to kafka on the short because i'm obsessed with this book there are going to be a lot of people who hate this book. It will be illegible at mm -hmm. the beginning. Is it, sorry, is it, I don't know what it is. So is it fiction, nonfiction? It's what is a it? fiction and it is hard to describe. <laughs> but essentially okay. there's a teenage boy, a crazy old man who can talk to cats and uh, a sort of mysteri mysterious metaphysical uh, connection and abstraction where we're questioning reality the whole time. And they- It sounds like an anime. Yeah, basically. And they're, uh, it's- alternating chapters in terms of their experience and it's kind of boiling together. So mm. when you start, it's still exceptionally well-written. So in my case, I didn't even know what the book was about other than it was on my watch list for a long time. This is the thing about avant-garde. I could still be interested in it because the writing is strong enough. This is why I think I actually like Dune and you hated it. It's not because either mm. of us is correct, but for whatever reason- The, the David Lynch Dune, by the way. Right, I haven't watched the villain, but I'm sure I'll love it. When I watched that movie, I immediately like- 
everything I'm seeing without needing to understand what the fuck's going on, right? And even when they have the hilarious 80s cube force fields and stuff, I'm like, I'm so forgiving of it <laughs> yeah, because yeah. this is the world I grew up in. But when people tell Very me- Very unlike Dave. Yeah. When people tell me they hate it, I can also be like, yeah, of course you hate it. I mean, it's a stupid movie, but- Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my example of that is this movie that stars Andrew Garfield called Under the Silver Lake, which didn't get a very big uh, theater run. I saw it at the- I think it was the film festival that I watched that one year, the Calgary International Film Festival. I love that movie. <laughs> it is one of my favorite movies I've ever watched. And uh, the three people I went with fucking hated it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right to, to hate this movie. But for me, this is such a, like a Kyle made movie. There's like, whatever. It's great. <laughs> it's so good. That guy that uh, commented on our bananas video and said bananas, the greatest mm -hmm. comedy ever made. I almost... <laughs> replied you need to go watch hot rod <laughs> I mean, it's so subjective yeah, the, right it's like yeah these are all such stupid well, comedy especially about. but okay so let's do some backstory here very quickly because there's really not a lot of information no. about this movie unfortunately so throw away your books rally in the streets or sometimes i will say depending on the publication is actually translated to something different, which is throw away your books, get out onto the street, mm. which is a very subtle difference, but is a difference, yep. I think. Yep. Anyways, regardless, released on April 24th, 1971 in Japan. It is rated 7.8 on IMDb. There is no rating on Metacritic. There is no critics who have rated this on Rotten Tomatoes, although on Rotten Tomatoes, 100 plus users have given this an 87%. It's available absolutely nowhere. You cannot rent this, you cannot stream this. I don't even think that there is a Blu-ray release in North America that you can get. How did we see this movie? Who knows, right? Magic. Who knows? The machine. This also comes down to is I don't know what the budget is, do not know what it made. It's plot description. An angst-ridden teen dealing with his dysfunctional family hits the streets. The story is intercut with various psychedelic, energetic vignettes. Wow. <laughs> that is the, it says so is, little and yet too much. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I will also say, I just want, at, this, at this point, I just want to say this. Maybe a better description. Well, I don't even know if it's a better description. On, on Wikipedia, it says, This movie is a metaphor for Japan's descent into materialism. It follows a young man's disillusionment disillusionment with the world around him and his determination to achieve something in life while his family members are content with their poor social and economic standing. And I think... So well, here's the thing about this. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that. Here's my... My, my frustration with both of those things like like yeah kind of but that would be like me saying that star wars is about intergalactic travel it's like sure it's kind of about that but not really what this movie is or about i think the first sentence of the wikipedia would be the best and i think the follow-up is interpretive because i don't think this guy's trying yeah, to achieve I anything i think he's right if not an anarchist, at least a nihilist, he's not trying to win yeah. the situation. He's trying to survive. And I think that over-explaining particularly art films is telling people what they ought to see in it. And I think that's the problem with art is uh, it well, ought yeah. to be left to the, your own devices. But then, like you were talking about the white supremacists, um, then you have to be able to take responsibility for how it's interpreted. Nobody wants to do that either. So Right. But I mean, this is also gets into that thing that I've had to confront so often of like bad English teachers, because I think a lot of people through high school get this understanding of like how you engage with literature is like, well, the blue curtains represent the internal struggle of the character wanting to see the outside world or whatever. Who cares? Bullshit. And it's like, 
Yeah, well, sometimes blue curtains are just blue curtains. Like you, you sometimes you you are overreaching. What isn't what what you can say is like why was this plotted the way it is? Like this interaction here, he says this, these things, like these tangible things. How does that relate to your life? Whatever. Those are tangible things you can grab a hold of. But yeah, I agree with that. Like that last, I was like, that's a bit of a reach, I think, as far as interpreting what this movie is quote unquote about. Regardless, this stars me mispronouncing every Japanese person's name. Who does? So it is Aimi Sasaki as me, Masahiro Saito as the father, Yukiko Kobayashi as sister, Fudeko Kanaka as grandmother, and then Sai Hirazumi as soccer team captain. What do you know about these actors, Dave? Nothing. I think one of them had actually on Letterboxd sort of a filmography, but I couldn't find anything. Yeah. So I I, Forget, I think it's the, oh, I can't remember now which one it was. Yeah. Actually, I think it's the father who has the most extensive yeah, career and maybe right. the grandmother too. Yeah. But both the sister and me have like two credits yeah. that they've ever been in. Like they were not in a bunch of stuff after You can this. tell why. Well, this was written by Shuji Terayama, directed by Shuji Terayama. As we said before, he's... Very well known in Japan. There's a museum named after him. Unfortunately for this movie, much like Clute a few weeks ago, there's really nothing written about this movie, at least in like English. So I don't know a lot about it other than this was Teriyama's first feature length film. So he's an interesting guy, though. Born in 1935, he spent his career doing this avant-garde work. He was a poet, playwright, essay writer, photographer, and film director. And he was part of what we kind of mentioned at the beginning, the Japanese New Wave, which was happening exactly at the same time as the French New Wave. That's only important because you'll sometimes see, uh, doing this deep dive, you'll sometimes see like Japanese New Wave was inspired by the French New Wave. Like, no, it was literally happening at the exact same time. Like it was not inspired by. But kind of like when we talked about Taiwanese New Wave with Edward Yang and Yi Yi, unlike that, this was not like a bunch of connected filmmakers working with each other. It was just a bunch of people working and why it flamed out after 15 years. It didn't like, continue on what made up the japanese movement was taboo subject matter including sexual violence radicalism youth culture and delinquency korean discrimination queerness and the aftermath of world war ii those are kind of their big things that they wanted to focus so on everything yeah. basically everything <laughs> although you were you were meant I, I don't know you haven't mentioned this and i don't know if you have an insight on this but they do mention the fact that one of the characters is korean or was like born in korea and then grew up in japan oh, yeah. or something like that no, Anyways, who cares? it is mentioned a little bit in this movie. I think I was reading this other book. Is it Pachinko? Yeah, it was Pachinko. That's also a great book, particularly if you're a second generation Korean, you should read that book. But mm. it offers insight into all of these essentially Korean serfs that were uh, brought in as laborers into the south part of Japan and ended up through the war trying to establish themselves in Japan, but you know, against discrimination. But it was interesting to learn that there's actually quite a large population of uh, Koreans that have established right. themselves within the undercurrents of Japanese society. But Japanese society is notoriously xenophobic, much like many others. Right. So it is interesting to hear that. I have some good friends who their father is Japanese, their mother is a white woman. So they, they're fluent in both. They can speak Japanese or English. But yeah, anytime they go and visit their father in Japan, like doesn't work well. They, uh, like they know that they're like half white. So there's a word for it. I just don't remember what it is in Japan. I went to Korea when I was 19, and just by the way I dressed before I even said a word. You know, cabs wouldn't stop mm -hmm. for me, all that stuff. So I know Korea has changed a lot since 1997, but that is just. I mean, you see that in America when everybody looks the same and somebody comes that looks different. 
you're automatically going to discriminate against them. It's not necessarily racism mm -hmm. the way we define it, you know, with uh, North American well, sensibilities. That, but, it could be classism or whatever. Sure, yeah. But that's human nature is we've got to distinguish. And uh, yeah, it would surprise, I think, a lot of woke white people that uh, racism is not just a white black thing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but anyways, we won't get into that. If I was a cab driver, I wouldn't stop for Dave either. It's also the same thing. Like I'm listening to this podcast series right now on the careers of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and kind of how they intersected. It was, it's actually really interesting. But Sammy Davis Jr. had this quip once about like, wouldn't it be great if we all just jumped in the pool and came out the same color? Which is a funny like little line. But at the same time, it's like my immediate again pessimistic thing is like yeah but then we were like discriminating against like hair color or hair yes. length or height or something there'd be something that we would have to anyways the filmmakers that were part of the japanese new wave rejected the classical conventions of japanese cinema and instead focused on more challenging works both thematically and formally uh, what's interesting in this new wave in japan is that it actually originated in the studio system itself because they just gave money to these young filmmakers and we were like Go and do what you want. They weren't really so concerned with what with what they were creating. Unlike the new waves and other ones where it was like them coming outside of the studio system and like forcing things to change. Started in the 50s, basically by the early 70s, it was starting to collapse. Many of the directors, though, would go on to do other things. Like once it did collapse, like some of them went into documentary features. Others went into like sculpture or photography or other art stuff. So that's that's what happened with them. For Teriyama, this would be one of two films that were released in 1971. The other, it was a short film, although apparently later on he would add to it or someone would add to it to make it feature length. Anyways, it originally was a short film called Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Uh, and it's a short film about a group of kids who have overthrown the adults to form their own empire. It includes, as you might expect, things such as animal abuse, drag play, nudity, and sexual fetishism. Plus erotic acts, whatever that means, erotic acts performed between kids and adults. All the all the stuff you would expect from the avant-garde. I mean, again, I, I discover Japanese culture through the lens of anime in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons why I love it so much is it does all of these things. And why Japanese porn culture is used to be more shocking because it's no holds barred, frankly. Uh, and yeah. Internet has changed all the accessibility of that stuff, but there's a deep undercurrent of their counterculture being much more developed. <laughs> and uh, well, I was about, I was going to say here too, though, like what, what is interesting to see stuff made in other cultures. I I told you before, like I'm watching Cowboy Bebop here for the first time because it came on Netflix. What I was a little bit shocked by being someone who was raised on North American media. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a gay character mm -hmm. in this cartoon. Mm -hmm. Like, I was just so like, I can't in believe. Like, in, the, in 1997 or whatever that yeah. came out. Yeah. Even before like Will and Grace and stuff like oh, yeah. that were coming out on like American television screens. And this was marketed towards kids in America too mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. Like when it came over and was being translated. But yeah. regardless, it's just like, oh, of course, like other cultures have like different levels of like what is wrong, what is right. What is, a sec what is acceptable, what isn't. So you get so like in your little bubble that it's like, oh, right, we're, we might be the weird ones that have these hangups on, on certain things. I'm still not the biggest fan of them showing like sexual acts between adults and kids, but uh, the, the other stuff I, I can get on board with a little bit. Just a quick insight. I mean, I think Japan is unique in that sense because, and I think this is Christianity, Korea has a huge influx of Christian influence in their culture, uh, particularly because they embraced Americanism, whereas Japan didn't. Uh, I mean, they emulate like you brought up, but they 
kept their own roots in both Shinto and Buddhist cultures. Korea is not uh, an open-minded society. They are, you know, anti-everything, frankly, until the last maybe 15, 20 years. But you couldn't be gay, you couldn't be black, you couldn't, you know, do this, you couldn't do a lot of can'ts. That's a very Christian thing. There's, it's a list of things mm. you can't do and uh, and a smaller list of things that would make you right. And you see that in art. Um, there's a lot of difficulty for Korean filmmakers, I think, for a long time to show anything other than war dramas and people get... I said this in our Sweetback episode and I was uh, sort of finger pointed, but you see the difference. This is why I think we should have maybe watched these together and had uh, that yeah. conversation because there are fascinating parallels to get insight into the differences between American and Japanese culture at this time, because they're trying to do the same things, but it comes out both the same and different. Okay. The one, the one last the thing bunnies. that I wanted to you bring to up that I found bunnies? interesting. Yeah. No, I don't want to get into the animal abuse again. But again, fucking hate animals, apparently, in yeah. 1971, because yeah. you watch them kill a rabbit. No. So you, you can see in like America and Hollywood specifically, how the theatrical tradition really influenced cinema in its early years. And even up until this day, there's a lot of conventions from theater they're still brought over into into cinema the theatrical traditions in japan are quite different than they are in the theatrical traditions of like uh, europe and, and and in america and i thought it was a really interesting thing and i always forget if it's no or kabuki because they're two different forms but one of them has the action being acted on stage and then separate actors on the sides vocalizing like if they're in pain, they'll scream and they'll shriek, the people that are on the sides of the stage. Or if they're laughing, the, the person on the sides who, who's doing the laughing. That happens in this movie, where there's off-screen like people like wailing and crying mm. or laughing hysterically in certain scenes. Like the, the biggest one is when he goes to the prostitute right. and he's freaking out. Internally, he's freaking out. And you actually hear that in the soundtrack of people like, oh, like they're yeah, like yeah. really like feeling bad. It's like, oh, that's interesting. He's using this old like kabuki or no form inside of a cinematic form which again is something i haven't really seen a whole lot but probably does happen in other japanese films i'm not sure i'm gonna assume i don't know but it, it, it's an old form looked at it through a new lens in 1971 and i just found that interesting it happens actually two or three times throughout the movie yeah when you bring it up i have a vague recollection of it happening i don't know anything about classical japanese uh, theatrical mm -hmm forms so i missed it entirely all mm -hmm. i experienced was uh, that i didn't like it <laughs> Well, goodbye, cinema. <laughs> We're done here. Well, the machine does say that we should wrap this up here because we, uh, we, I think we have made our point here, Dave. Do we have points? Um, I guess we should first ask. What's that? Do we have points? I, I, guess, I didn't realize we... <laughs> I don't know. I guess we should first ask this. The, the questions that we always ask each episode, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Dave, what do you say? I mean, uh, on, as a very flippant offhand thing, I think it's a no and no. I think if you're researching, yeah, being a provocateur, maybe it's a yes and yes. I have no idea, Kyle. For me personally, I never want to watch this movie again. And if we never talk about it again, I'm fine. However, yeah, if anyone brings it up, I'll have something to say because we did watch it. So I, I don't know how to answer that question, right? Let me tell you what's bullshit. Yeah, you just like force <laughs> yourself into the conversation. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here. My argument would be like, I think this is maybe historically significant, but not culturally significant anymore. Like, I just don't see this holding up. It doesn't hold up for me as a white guy in North America. And I can't imagine most audiences going into this and be like, wow, and like standing ovation for this movie that Unless I just Unless you write through. for Letterboxd. Yeah. Right. The, there is a publication called Kinema Junpo, which is the oldest running magazine in Japan. It's 102 years old nice. as of 2021, I think. And uh, 
it was voted this movie as the ninth best Japanese film of 1971. So that's a very lot of like is the ninth best Japanese film of 1971. So it's a subset of a subset, but they so they hold it in high esteem as far as the year it came out. It also won the grand prize at the San Remo Film Festival. One thing actually we didn't mention, yes, we're both no and no for this. I think there is some similarities between this and uh, Godzilla versus Hedera. Oh yeah. I do think we that there's the two young Hedera. guys That's being right. like, let's just push things randomly and one is like very provocative and like nudity and all that stuff and the other one is like I guess it's a kid's film, maybe. Well, he tried to be provocative, <laughs> like, right? And as we yeah. learned when we talked about that, by taking money from that from Toho, there were a lot of restrictions because it was part of a, a bigger franchise. Right. The darker aspects of that film were trying to do what this film's doing. You know, you have dead yes. floating mannequins, you have uh, shots of people fish getting heads. melted, fish heads. It's quite graphic at some points. It, yes, he didn't have a gang rape scene or a child being uh, sexually abused by a woman, but you get the sense that maybe he would have if they just given him free reign. I don't know. You know, and again, I I think this is what I was comparing to that book. I should have been talking about Hetero. These are all peers. I'm pretty sure Murakami is maybe 10 years younger than this guy. Would have been if he hadn't died. People of that era are angry about the same things. And so how they find a way to express and deal with that trauma is is an interesting conversation. It's probably why yeah. people on Letterboxd, I'm just railing on them because I couldn't believe that this movie's rated a 4.1. Yeah, it, it's very, very, very it's it was part of the 250 of all time. It, it fell off of there a few months ago. So it's not part of the top 250. It was rated higher. I think as more people saw that and were watching it, I do believe that the rating has gone down and uh, our rating is going to make it go down further. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Here's, so about that, that's where I went to because this was not released in America. So Rod Ebert and Pauline Kale did not talk about this movie. So for our critics' choice, I'm taking two reviews from Letterboxd. This first one by user Yi Jian, written in uh, 2016. This is a five-star review I'm going to start off with. Gross. They write, extremely loud, wild, carefree, emotional, and provocative, idealizing vulgarity and angst in the most avant-garde way possible. The fourth wall is completely demolished right from the start, and the film crew literally stands together in one picture to announce the end of the film. Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets is the record of a boy's life as he hits rock bottom, filmed with a mixture of styles extracted from music videos and documentaries. It is a film you run and scream with while channeling the rebellious side you never knew you had. The music shouts at your face and encourages you to shout back. Feels like the epitome of Japanese new wave cinema, despite being unlike anything I've seen before, a punk's acid trip. Sex and riot and rock and roll, all under a psychedelic filter, open book of infinite margins i can watch this again and again so high praise by that user any any rebuttal there dave or um oh, not a rebuttal i mean everybody's allowed to have their incorrect opinions i just think that right. oh, so this is how i was feeling when i was reading these letterbox I, I could get through maybe four or five which is surprising they always emphasize their interpretation of the intent of the film and so it's kind of like you're talking about with the blue curtains Every mm-hmm. review I read was trying so hard to almost show off how much they got out of each nuance that they interpreted was important. And I yeah. distrust reviews of that nature, not because they're not smart. I'm sure these are very intelligent and well-read people. Maybe some of them are film historians. I have absolutely no idea. Maybe some of them are Japanese and they actually get all the cultural rev- relevances. But I actually didn't read a single review in my short uh, pool of actually referencing Japanese cultural references. 
it was always yeah, no, that's true. about like, oh, this is how uh, you make great uh, counterculture things by hard cuts and not giving a shit. And it's like, that's not, that's not a valid way to uh, appraise a film, in my opinion. Well, here's, here's a negative review here then, Dave. This, this is by the user Nora, who gave it one and a half stars. And this was back in April of 2020. Uh, they write... I'm so fucking tired of political slash experimental slash art films exploiting the sexual trauma of female bodies. There is a harrowing gang rape scene in this film that goes on for so long and it made me feel physically ill to the point that I could barely stomach the rest of the film. Wonder what it must be like for people who can watch this and come away from it praising the power of cinema as though they watched the ending 10 minutes in some kind of vacuum and the rest of the film with a numbness for the way Terayama uses rape as a way to make a political statement that has no interest in the effects of trauma or really any concern for the female experience but uh cool soundtrack and mid-shot aperture changes it does so i and the other thing that i read was five stars the music's amazing that is not a five star yeah, that's rating a, that's a very low bar yeah. Um, I found one too, and this is how much I was upset because after reading the letterbox reviews, but it's from a website called cultfollowing.co.uk from someone named Ewan Gladelow. But to paraphrase, it's kind of talking about what we're talking about is that the idea of appraising avant-garde for the sake of pretension is a waste of time. This movie just really doesn't hold up. And instead of having to focus a little bit narrowly on just the brutal gang rape scene and the female experience, which is totally valid for a female user. It, it is in its entirety a mess. And I, I think yes. like uh, Death in Venice, we'll get hate mail for this because there will be people, as she brought up, that will think that showing uh, sort of a mentally incapacitated female walk into a men's locker room is somehow a comment on the power of X, Y, and Z, but it's uh, it's not. It's gross perversion. I don't know. Maybe I'm a prude. Well, both of those things can be true, Dave. But uh, <laughs> here's what it is. That's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free, though, is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts and go and hit us up on, uh, on our YouTube as well. You can go yell at us over there. All caps, baby. All caps. <laughs> Talking about ratings and reviews, Dave, out of five, what are you going to give this movie? I'm going to line it up with the movies I've compared it to. I'm going to give it a one. Okay. And I think you have a valid point that this has more filmmaking nuance than Sweetback, but I don't think it makes it more successful. So we did end up talking about it for an hour and a half, but we talked around it. And not <laughs> we always it. do. Here's where I came down on it is that's where I kind of started. I'm like, okay, let me go to Sweetback. What did I give Sweetback? I couldn't remember. I gave Sweetback a one. And as I am wont to do, because I find that aesthetically I get... I get swayed by aesthetics more than more than anything. And I really, I really dislike Sweetback on like almost every level. Because I like this more, I'm giving it a two. I'm rating it a two. Which means that it averages out to a 1.5 is what we're going to give this movie. Which uh, does, it's going to go right above Sweetback is what that's going to mean. But it does tie with one other movie, Dave. So do you think this is better 
or worse than wild rovers. Oh, wow. So getting upset or being bored. Huh. Yeah, like that, that is true. Like wild rovers is such a, that movie is forgotten as soon as you push stop on the movie. I actually so, took a second because I couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, shit, Kyle. You know, you know what I will do? I think it's above just the way I want to think about reappraising Sweetback. At the very least, as poor as both of these films are from a, a casual viewing perspective, they are at least trying to say something. <laughs> right. They have an intellectual uh, base. And I failed to see that at all in Wild yeah. Rovers. So here is my guess. And who knows when we do our reevaluation on our final episode this year that the machine is going to let us do. I wouldn't uh, be surprised if Sweetback maybe goes above Wild Rovers yeah. in this list. Yeah. <laughs> but regardless, entering in our list at the new number 36 position is Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets. Uh, well, let's start what we're going to watch next week, Dave. I'm going to push this button. Oh, another movie I'm not super familiar with. We're going to watch Walkabout. Walkabout. Mm, sounds Australian. It sounds very Australian to me. Yeah. <laughs> very, the, very Australian. What's that uh, instrument they use? Didgeridoo. They wouldn't even need one. We just uh, perfectly mimed one. We, we sound great. That's right. Oh. You get the vuvuzela, I'll get the didgeridoo, and we'll just form a rock band. I just realized I probably band. only know these things because of Crocodile Dundee. I wear truck nuts as earrings.